0: You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Dustin Good, if I haven't met you yet, one of the pastors here, thank you so much Alyssa and Steph for leading us in the high praises of God, and um, I just wanted to say too about Mile One Mission, I've heard it said on certain podcasts I listen to that the Maritimes are like a graveyard for church planting, and so I'm glad our church has uh, joined together to support them financially, and I hope that we commit personally to praying for them, praying for that work, um, because it's hard work. It's hard work over there in St. John's. Uh, We're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you could open your Bible, or if you didn't bring one, these are in the chair in front of you. And uh, open it to Matthew 5, which is on page 858 in the church Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, of course, you can just take that one home with you, the one from the seat in front of you, as our gift to you. So I'll just find my spot. And then... uh, Let's pray. We'll pray to begin looking at God's Word. Oh, Father, please uh, enable my mouth to be a good conveyor of the words of your mouth. Please help our ears, too, even as I've studied the ears of my heart, so to speak, have been opened. And I pray that that would be the same for the people listening here today that I would say things for the benefit of all the sheep gathered here and people that are wondering about Jesus, maybe people that haven't been to church in a long time, whatever, that you, would, that you would encourage, that you would convict, and maybe that you would even save a life today. And we just thank you that we have your word in our own language. Tons of work over tons of years to bring us so many good English Bibles and even blood that was shed in the 1500s and and on to bring us these Bibles. So just pray that we would cherish your word and that it would guide us in how to use our words very well. Just pray this for Jesus' sake and our good. Amen. Have you ever broken the fifth commandment? Maybe you're thinking, which one is the fifth? You shall not murder. Well, most of us, I'm pretty sure, would reply with a quick and confident, no, no, of course. I've never taken the life of another human being. I've never murdered. And when we think of our besetting sins, the ones that are, that are hardest for us to put off, murdering is not usually on that list. It's like not really hard for me to stop murdering. And I should say all of us can go days months probably even years without ever having murdered anyone or so we think in our passage today Jesus is about to blow the doors off our definition of murder and I wonder how we'll see ourselves after we learn from him and I wonder if his sacrifice therefore will become much more dear to us as we explore this passage Before we get into it, Matthew, it's Matthew 5.21, that's where we'll be starting. But before we get into it, I just wanted to say how much I love Pastor Ben's choice of title for the Sermon on the Mount, the Manifesto of the King. I know he introed that a long time ago, but I think it's perfect. And if you've forgotten what manifesto means, it means the public declaration, policy, and aims. And king is the lord of the land. So you put those things together... This Sermon on the Mount is the public declaration of the policy and aims of the Lord of the land. Right? So these aren't just like some suggestions from some religious guru or something like that. What we've been studying in this series is not just a bunch of hot tips and advice from Jesus. They're non-negotiables. They are the law of the land of the kingdom of heaven. With the first few sermons, Ben, I thought, very well, masterfully brought out what we are as citizens in that kingdom. What we are. There has to be, like Alyssa was talking about, there has to be a change in the heart. It doesn't matter what we do on the outside if there's no thing that we are, a new thing that we are. But in Ben's sermon last week, and then continuing on for quite a while, Jesus is going to be showing us what we do as citizens. Once we become a citizen, here's what we do Here's the life we live. This is what a citizen does of the kingdom of heaven. This is how you can recognize a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They are obeyers of Jesus. And they'll strive to use even every word that's coming out of their mouth in submission to the king of heaven. So let's read the text, and then, and then we'll uh, yeah pick it apart in three sections, kind of. So this is what we got for today. Matthew 5:21: "You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, "Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says, "You fool will be subject to hellfire." so. If you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, you'll be thrown into prison. And truly I tell you, you will not get out of there until you have paid The last penny. If you got a bulletin, you might have noticed that I named this sermon the religion of the tongue. The religion of the tongue. And at first glance, you might be thinking, Well, well, why religion? Why tongue? Well, throughout a large portion of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually arguing for a true or a proper religion. I know religion generally in our culture, it's it only has negative connotations, it seems like, but biblically defined. Religion is just what you do with your faith. That's what religion is. As in James 1:26 to 27, he says this. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion's useless, and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So religion is what we do with our faith. And why tongue? Why am I focusing in on the use of the tongue when the paragraph heading, at least in the church Bibles, you'll see there it says, Murder Begins in the Heart. That paragraph heading would seem to lead us in a different direction than the tongue, like our, our thought life or what's going on in our hearts and stuff like that. But let's walk through the passage, and I'll show you why I think Jesus is talking about our words here. So you look in verse 22. It says, whoever is angry with his brother or sister. Well, how are we most often angry? Like, we don't go right to fists and knives. (laughs) We start with angry words. That's usually how anger shows itself. Again, in 22, whoever insults his brother or sister. How do we insult? We'll do that with our tongues. Moving on, it says, uh, whoever says, you fool. Again, the tongue, whoever says, you fool. Then, in 23 and 24, we're told to reconcile with our brother and sister. How are we going to do that? Well, it's with the use of our tongue. With our tongue, we're going to confess to them and and speak humble words to them and verbalize our desire for reconciliation. And then finally, in 25, we're told to reach a settlement quickly with our adversary. How are we going to do that? That's with some very skillful use of the tongue. So, as I've mulled this over and I've meditated on it, and I've just come to see that Jesus is teaching both first negatively, then positively about the use of the tongue in the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching us how to use our tongue religiously. So, the first, or the second part, that was kind of showing the tongue, showing the tongue in the passage. Now we're going to move to bridling the tongue, which is where Jesus starts. What sort of things we need to stop from letting come out of our mouths. Jesus first gives us three warnings concerning our tongue. These warnings, I think, are meant to jolt us, to to wake us up so that we treat our words more seriously. They help us to see the value that God places on our words and on our speech. Jesus begins by reminding us that a murderer was subject to judgment, that being the judgment of death. In the Mosaic Law, if you murdered, your life was taken away as payment. Then he goes on to say that anyone who has an angry tirade against his brother or sister will also be subject to judgment. The same judgment as a murderer. It's the same Greek word in both of those judgments. Same Greek word. So murdering and angry outbursts are on par in Jesus' view. Because both of them are are taking life from someone, just in different ways, but they're both taking life These warnings have been very personally convicting to me because I'm not good with my words, especially at home. My daily battle is with my tongue, and it's often the first item in my morning prayer that I could get to the end of the day without having to repent of what I've said or how I said it. Particularly then, of course, with my wife and my children, my words are an area that I've done great harm. And there's innumerable reasons that Jesus had to suffer and die to ransom me from the punishment I deserve for the things that have come out of my mouth. And so it's a strange providence of God that I should be chosen to speak on this passage. I think that's ironic almost. But for all that, I claim his cleansing blood and I'll still seek to kill the sin that is eagerly jumping, trying to jump off my tongue. So Jesus takes us through these three categories of bad speech accompanied by three levels of judgment for that speech. The severity of the judgment accompanying each category of speech shows their sinfulness. Because, like Paralleling the Jewish system of law in the days of Jesus, um, corporal offenses, the punishments went from beheading to stoning to burning, burning alive in the Valley of Hinnom. And in the same way, Jesus is going from being subject to judgment, to subject to the court, to subject to hellfire. He's signifying the heightened defense of each of these categories of sinful speech. So yeah, each category we engage in is damning, but some are more sinful than others. Accordingly, greater damnation, greater punishment is reserved for those whose sins are greater. And Jesus shows which sin is most sinful by showing us which punishment is most dreadful. And and why am I focusing on that? Maybe you've heard, and I definitely have growing up in the church, people say, like, all sins are equal. Or there isn't one sin worse than another sin. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's true that all sins deserve the wrath of hell, but not all sins deserve the same wrath in hell. All sin deserves wrath of hell. It's against God. All sin is against God. But not all sins deserve the same wrath in hell. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And even in our own justice system, corrupt as it is, we know this. We don't give life in prison for someone who steals a chocolate bar. We give that to the one who steals a life. Both thieves, the chocolate stealer and the life stealer, they will receive a punishment, but it's in proportion to the crime committed. That's justice, and that's what Jesus, I think, is talking about here. But I wonder, as you, as you think through this, because remember, Ben, when he, weeks ago, he, he set the scene for us. Jesus goes up a mountain. His disciples gather around him. That's who's there. It's not just the throng. It's not just the huge crowd. It's, it's, it's those people that really want to follow him. Do you find yourself wondering, then, why is Jesus threatening his disciples with hell? Like, what is going on here? What, what about grace and forgiveness? What about his atonement that he was soon to accomplish on the cross? What's it all mean? Well, I've come to see that the warnings in the Bible, and there's lots of them, they're just as much for believers as they are for unbelievers. Because don't forget, Judas was up on that mountain, and there was probably others that fell away that were up on that mountain with Jesus. So those warnings are for both groups, believers and unbelievers. For, for an unbeliever, if there's anybody here who isn't following Jesus yet, then the warning of Jesus of hellfire and stuff is, is to tell you of what's coming for you, for the life you've lived, and how it will one day overtake you if you don't run to him for salvation. That God's being patient with you. He's being patient with you that you might turn to him. And then on the other side, for the believer... The warnings are meant to keep us from turning God's lavish grace into cheap grace. Cheap grace is when we make provision for sin because God's going to forgive me. So I'm going to do this because I know God will forgive me. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace perverts Jesus' um, sacrifice into a license for sin. But lavish grace, it gives us full pardon and bountiful mercy that we might no longer live to sin, but to God. That's the goal of lavish grace. Lavish grace propels us to live out a life of righteousness that could surpass even the scribes and the Pharisees, but springing from a heart of love for God rather than a heart of self-righteous law-keeping. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is building to it. Because if you look where it ends in chapter seven, I believe, the things he says at the end about the true path and the true the true fruit and the wolves and the like all that stuff at the end, he's building toward I think he's showing that this is what a kingdom person is like. Because an encounter with God should change us. Change us from the inside, it'll show on our actions, it'll even show on our mouths. Like, think about it. If we were walking on the highway, which you're not allowed to do, but if you're walking on Highway 11 and up comes behind you a logging truck going 110 kilometers and it had an encounter with you, you would be changed, right? Not for the better, but you would be changed. Well, how much more awesome and powerful is God than some logging truck? Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5:21 to 26, that if we've really encountered him, if we've come through his door of faith, if we're walking his path of life, it's going to show in our tongues. It's going to increasingly show on our tongues as we'll seek to do continually more good with them. And we'll use our tongues for repentance to God and reconciliation with our brothers and sisters and members of our household. Is it hard for you to remember the importance of the tongue as you go about your daily routine? It is for me. I, like, I feel the weight of it in the morning, and 10 minutes down the road, I'm blowing up about something. It's hard. Or is any of this maybe new to you or renewed, I, wherever we are, I think that thinking about words the way God and Jesus think about words is going to require a paradigm shift. It's going to require a change in our thinking because we, we just don't take words as seriously as Jesus does we don't. And it's most likely that we treat our words so lightly because the damage we do with them is invisible. Typically invisible. It's within people. Like concerning this passage, Sinclair Ferguson is quoted as saying, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. We must realize that the one who is angry with his brother or sister, or insults them, does with their tongue what a murderer does with his hands. Do we really believe that old uh, playground rhyme that we used to insulate ourselves from verbal attacks? I remember saying it. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like, I remember things from grade one still, hurtful things that kids said to me. I still remember that. How many adults have I met with that are still formed in their identity by things they received as children from kids, from parents, from relatives, from siblings? Things that shape their identity in a negative way. I I wonder how many of us would have preferred to just been beat with rods rather than words because at least that would have healed by now. So words can take life. Words can give life. Words can mar the image of God in someone, make them feel not even human, worthless. Or (laughs) words can produce the image of Christ in someone. What an amazing thing words can do. Words can kill dreams, or they can fuel them. Words can give confidence, or they can crush it. Words can show love, or they can show hatred. Words really do matter. I just, Before we move on to commissioning the tongue, I just wanted to read a smattering of verses from the Bible that kind of how it describes the weaponization of words and lips and what we want to bridle and stay away from. Proverbs 12.18 There is one who speaks rashly Right? Speaking rashly is not... Think, it's just speaking out of emotion. Speaking fast. speaking. There's one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword. Like you're just jabbing swords in people. Speaking rashly. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Psalm 57.4 I'm surrounded by lions. I lie down among devouring lions. People whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. So he's saying, these people are like devouring lions the way they use their mouths against me. Then over in uh, Psalm 64.3, three says a similar thing. Who sharpen their swords like tongues, right? Like getting a good edge on that sword. People that are, th- that are good, effective at pain with their tongues. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim bitter words like arrows. And then perhaps you know the section in James about the tongue. I'll just read a portion of it, 6 to 10, 3, 6 to 10. The tongue's a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the whole course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, fish, they're all tamed and have been tamed by mankind but nobody can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be this way. So as we come to the last section of commissioning the tongue, How are we to do that? It's almost like after reading that from James, the kingdom always has something to put off and then something to put on in its place. So we put off that sort of hateful, insulting speech, angry speech, and we need to put on reconciliation and resolution, that sort of speech. That's what we're going to move to now. But how can we have any hope of using our tongue for good when we just read in James that nobody can even tame the tongue? It's a restless evil. No one can tame it. Like, how are we going to have a tongue of righteous of the righteous that's like choice silver, as in Proverbs ten twenty, or or feed many with our lips, as Proverbs ten twenty one, or bring healing, like Proverbs thirteen seventeen, or spread knowledge, as in Proverbs fifteen seven, or have gracious words that are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones, as in. Proverbs 16.24, or only speak what is good for building up someone in need, as we hear in Ephesians 4.29, or sustain him with a word who is weary, as in Isaiah 54, or here in our passage, Matthew 5.24, how are we going to reconcile with our brother or sister, or come to a speedy resolution with an adversary, as in Matthew 5.25, like, how can we have the tongue of heaven? How can we tame that little beast in between our teeth? How can we use our tongue religiously? Can you imagine having a tongue like Jesus? I found a passage that I think is very helpful in Colossians. Let's flip over to there. Colossians is on page 1045 in the church Bibles about how how we can do this, how we can have a tongue that does good. And increasingly more good. Colossians three, sixteen and seventeen. Kind of read it and pick it apart as we go. I, f- I feel like it's sort of if you're it's sort of like a recipe. Put all these ingredients in, and we're gonna have good results. Colossians three, sixteen to seventeen. Let the word of Christ dwell, in, dwell richly among you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And in my other translation, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So both of those things, I think, is what we want. We want the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, and if it's doing that, then it's going to be richly dwelling among us too, as a people. We've got to get more word into us. We've got to get it in by reading it, that's why we started the Bible reading plan. We've got to get it in by memorizing it. That's why we're memorizing the history of redemption. That's why Ben and, every, and Mark and me, we work hard on these sermons to get word into people. That's why uh, we encourage you in your own time in the word, and not just bite-sized, like really dig. You need more word in you. You need to cultivate it so it dwells richly in you. Then, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we got the word of Christ dwelling richly in us and amongst us. Then when we open our mouths, good things are pouring out in teaching of wisdom and admonishing. And even what we're doing, like on Sunday when we sing, we're definitely singing to God, but we're also singing to each other. We're also teaching each other through the songs. So think about what you're saying. We're singing it to each other. We're teaching. We're making the word of Christ dwell amongst us richly by singing. And then this, and 17, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, whatever, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that needs to be our mindset. Everything I'm doing, name of the Lord Jesus, richly, the word of Christ, richly dwelling in me. This is how I want to act. The, in the name of Jesus, all those things working together. So, as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly and amongst us richly, we're going to have the necessary ingredients to reconciliation and restitution, or resolution, sorry. One of my ministry convictions is definitely that people need more word, not less. You don't need more of Ben or Mark or me. You don't need more programs. you don't need more vacations. You need more word. The words are food. It's our strength. It's our guide. The more word you've got in you, the more it dwells richly among you and in you, the more good you can do. That's just what's going to happen. So as the word dwells in you richly, it'll keep you soft to the promptings of God. And it'll keep you humble, and it'll keep you teachable before him, so you can be molded how he wants to. You won't be fine with coming to church to offer your gift to God, while your brother or sister have something against you. And because Jesus put aside so many things to reconcile you to God, then you will put aside whatever you need to, to reconcile with your brother and sister. And then you'll go to them, instructed by that good word. Use your tongue as a tool to promote life and flourishing for the good of the other. And we shouldn't let conflicts keep us from church. We need to deal with them. Or or, or from communion or from fellowship. That's why, I, that's why it says in Matthew 5 there, then come and offer your gift. So leave it there, go deal with it, but then come back. So as we drive to church, we should be thinking through the week. And most of us probably don't need to think back that far. Who have we wronged? Maybe we need to seek reconciliation with our, our wife or our kids. Or maybe another member here at Calvary. Maybe we used our words for manipulation or... Maybe we just put somebody in their place rather than correcting them for their good. We just let them have it. Maybe we need to do this Saturday night so we're really ready for church Sunday morning. Deal with these things. The point is, is that when our mouths get us in trouble, they cause a conflict, or when someone else's mouth maybe has hurt us, Jesus is saying it's important enough to deal with it immediately immediately. Even so important that we would interrupt our worship of God to go deal with it. We're here to offer our thing, and we remember, no, deal with it now. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how important it is. Get it sorted, renew fellowship, then come back and offer your gift to God. Of course, we also need to keep in mind that the Bible says love covers over a multitude of sins, right? So not every little thing needs to be dealt with. Lots of things we can just ignore, and not count as an offense, and not be so easily offended. But if we know that there's a problem, and we know it's definitely causing a rift, then we must deal with it, because that is how a tongue is to be employed in the kingdom of heaven. And James gives us, I think, an amazing little formula to go aside alongside that Colossians that Colossians recipe. And I think, if, in my family at least, if Cat and I and the kids did this, I think we'd have like 90% less conflict. It's simple, it's easy, it's just not easy to do. (laughs) Here it is. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. If we would just put a lid on it, and be slow to speak, we would have so much less conflict. We should be quick to listen. That's what we should be running to. That's what we, sh- what we should be fast at. Listening. Listening and understanding. Trying to listen in such a way as to see where the other person's coming from. Not just, not just listening as you're forming a rebuttal to their arguments in your head. Not that kind of listening. Like, listening and perceiving for Understanding. Then, when we open our mouths and we just let that rich word of Christ roll out, it'll be a good thing. Because we've slowed down, we've understood, then we speak. If we're listening and speaking like that, anger is going to be very slow at showing its face. If we listen and we speak like that, our mouths will not give us occasion to be liable, like angry and liable to judgment. And if we're listening and speaking like that, it won't interrupt our worship of God because we have to go deal with the conflict that we caused. Then finally in Matthew 5, Jesus ends with talking about how we can deal with an adversary. He tells us to reach a settlement quickly while we're on the way to the court with this, this person. He shows us how urgent it is and how necessary it is to reach a settlement fast quick and in a hurry. The point is to try to settle, if we can, one-on-one before it gets to a judge or the court before they take over kind of thing. This sort of thing would require great skill with our tongues mixed with a ton of self-control and wisdom. And this could be an area, if you ever have something like this in your life, this could be an area where the whole course of your life could be set on fire by what you say, or you might be able to, with skill and patience and s- self-control, reach a settlement and divert the disaster. But I, I don't know if you wonder how on earth to do that. I sure do. <laughs> I think of that scenario, I'm just like, ah. I don't know. guess I'm ban the penalty because I don't know what to say. I could, I could be silent, but what do I say? Well, I think Proverbs gives us a lot of help in this. Maybe not the exact words, but here's the flavor of how we, what we say. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. So with an adversary, we're not, repeat, we're not giving fire for fire. That's not going to help anything. It's actually a soft answer that will turn away the wrath. Or Proverbs 16.14, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Well, how's a wise man appeasing? He doesn't have anything to give a king. It's not like he's giving him some great gift or treasure. He's going to do it with his words, skillfully, patiently, gently. Proverbs uh, 25, verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. So two things that you'd think can't change. How How could a ruler be persuaded? How could you break a bone? Well, with a soft tongue. So I think both Solomon and Jesus are making the point that it's really tricky, but possible. It will it will require all of your self-control, major dependence and enablement on the Spirit, and an ability to convey the words of Christ with a level head. So it's hard, it's an art, but it's possible. And although I think that's good encouragement, good help, in how to deal with a human adversary, I, I really think what Jesus is zeroing in on here is is uh, mankind's greatest adversary, who's actually God. If that sounds strange, let's backtrack back to the beginning. Do you remember at the beginning when I said, have you broken the fifth commandment? Do you think of yourself as a murderer? And probably none of us did or do. We don't count ourselves as murderers. Well, after hearing all this, I wonder, do you now? Have you used that kind of speech But then again, it doesn't totally matter how we view ourselves. It's does Jesus view us as a murderer, a mouth murderer. Because guaranteed, everybody in this room has committed at least one act of this kind of murder in your life, if not hundreds. Some of you are just murderers. Some of us are mass murderers. You're a murderer. I for sure am a murderer, according to this standard. And God has commanded us, you shall not murder. And Jesus informs us that God views angry, insulting, hateful words as murder. So we have a big problem. It's a God-sized problem. We have God as our adversary. And if justice were to be the only voice in the matter, we should be thrown into hell, like it says, until we paid the last penny which we would never do because our crimes are against an eternal god of eternal worth and therefore finite little things like us could never pay that eternal debt we would never get out and we should never get out but god whenever you see that in the bible that's that's an awesome point but god in his mercy has postponed the course of judgment he tells you to reach a settlement with him quickly while you're on the way to the court, the, life is, uh, the way is your life and the court is at your death. And if you haven't yet come to Christ for mercy, you shouldn't delay. If you are here and you're not yet following Jesus, you should not delay. You should come quickly because you don't know how much longer your way is. Will you be alive many more years or days, hours? You don't know. You don't know. Don't pass it off saying, oh, I'll reach a settlement with God tomorrow. That's presuming upon the patience of God. You need to reach a resolution before you make it to God's court. Because when that happens, when we die, that's it. That's too late. Our adversary will hand us over to the judge, and the judge will throw us into prison. So what are you to do with that information if you're still in your sins? If you haven't fled to Christ, I think 1 John 1.9 is amazing for unbelievers and believers alike. It says this, if we agree with God about our sins and confess them, so maybe even this morning we're being convicted by the Spirit in our heart about the words we've used, and yes, I am a murderer, and you say, yeah, God, you're true. That's true about me. I confess it then guess what? He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. And not just to forgive you, to cleanse you throughout the course of your life from all unrighteousness. Not just, I forgive you, now get out of my sight. I forgive you, you're my child. I will change you into the image of Christ. It's amazing. What are we to do with that information if we're already in Christ? I say use it. Use it to deepen your repentance and your faith. You now know, along with all the other sins you knew God forgave you about, that he also forgave you, likely as a murderer. Let that infuse your worship of a God of such grace that Jesus died on the cross even for murderers. If anybody wants to know more about this, or if you want to know what it really means to trust in Jesus and how to do that and what it looks like, myself and any of the elders who are here, would, uh, we'll be up front. We'd love to talk with you or pray with you, pray about anything this morning. Or, of course, if you'd like clarification on anything that I said this morning, because I can't cover it all, and I can't cover all my bases in 38 minutes, so I'm available. Um, I just would like to pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Yeah, Jesus, you you are good with your words. You know how to use them like a surgeon would. Not like a, not like a warrior in us, not hacking and slashing, like a surgeon to cut out the cancer of sin. And I just pray if anybody else has a huge struggle with words like I do and want to have the kingdom of the heaven reflected in what we say, I just pray you give them great grace and great strength to keep coming to you in confession, to keep coming to you for forgiveness and cleansing. And I just pray that we would use our words at Calvary very thoughtfully, very purposefully, that we would in, indeed be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger. And I pray these things for Jesus' honor and for our good. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.